being a banker for 21 years almost. That's okay. It's, it's going to fuel you. Um, it's still, I think, fueling me to this day. Somebody does a little bit more, should be waiting a long time. So people are just going to have to roll up their sleeves. Try to make sense of it because there's so much information coming in and you don't know what's, what's relevant and what's not. The corporate world, uh, for four years as a CEO, I'm not interested in having this small probability of losing a whole lot of money. You need to be surrounded by other smart people. Got me through the door because it's a pretty small group. And it's fine, 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 Hello everyone, this is your host, Maura Maya. Welcome to another episode of the Finance Podcast, where I explore the professional journey of individuals who have successfully built careers in the financial industry. This episode is particularly interesting as we will be talking about COVID-19 and its effect on markets and how this will all play out. My guest this week is Brett House, Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist at Scotiabank. Prior to joining Scotiabank in October 2016, Brett was Chief Economist at an alternative investment management startup in Toronto and Global Strategist at Woodbine Capital Advisors, a New York-based global macro fund. Earlier in his career, Brett served as Principal Advisor in the Executive Office of the United Nations Secretary General and as an economist at the International Monetary Fund. He cut his teeth in financial markets at Goldman Sachs International in London and at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. Brett is a Rhodes Scholar with degrees in economics from the University of Oxford and Queen's University at Kingston. In addition, he has taught at Oxford University, McGill University, and the University of Cape Town, and has held research roles at Columbia University and Massey College at the University of Toronto. Brett sits on the investment committees of Pearson College and the Canadian Rhodes Scholar Foundation. He received a 2014 Quebec Notable Award in Finance, the 2015 Good Citizens Award from his hometown of Lincoln, Ontario, and the 2018 Professional Leader Award from Start Proud. He was named a Young Global Leader by the World Economic Forum in Davos. So please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Brett House. Hi, Brett. Thank you for being with us on the platform here today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure having you. So before uh, we get started in understanding your day-to-day role as Deputy Chief Economist for Scotiabank is really just to understand your story. If you can tell us how it all started. Well, I grew up in southern Ontario in a little village called Vineland in the Niagara region where uh, I was raised amongst the fruit farms and vineyards there. I went to school locally and was lucky to win a scholarship to Pearson College, one of the United World Colleges on Vancouver Island to complete high school. And from that point, uh, my career took me both across Canada and abroad. I studied at Queen's and at St. Andrews in Scotland um, and graduate school at Cape Town and Oxford uh, before heading into a career that's about one third public policy, one third research and a third financial markets, buy side and sell side. And that's pretty much by intent, but you can't put together something like that in a completely premeditated way. It relies on some zigs and zags that are fortuitous. And luckily, a few of those opportunities came my way. So I came to Toronto about five years ago. I was initially involved in a startup and then uh, it didn't quite start up as anticipated. And I moved over to Scotiabank three and a half years ago, and it's a delight to be in Toronto because after about 23 years away, I get to be close to my mom and dad who are still in my hometown and see them frequently. 
and see my sister and brother-in-law and nephews in Ottawa and old friends I grew up with and went to school with. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I'd like to dive in a little bit deeper into your time at Goldman. I know that you did spend a few years with the firm. If you could just elaborate on that experience for us. Well, my first job out of undergrad was on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs in London. And it was on the emerging markets, fixed income sales and trading desk. And we worked with uh, government and corporate issuers in uh, Latin America, Asia, Africa, and uh, Eastern Europe as they went into the bond markets to raise debt uh, capital. And that was a fascinating place to be in 1992-93 because a lot of countries were just coming back into the global economy after having been planned economies behind the Iron Curtain for decades. Uh, we were doing the first issues for places like Kazakhstan, uh, South Africa, and uh, we were issuing for traditional emerging markets like Argentina. And the spreads that were being uh charged on debt for emerging markets were incredibly wide at the time. They were not nearly as emerged as now. There was a great deal more political risk. Economic management had not settled into quite the orthodoxy that it is now. Uh, there were much greater swings and volatility in the prospects for individual countries. So it was incredibly uh, rich and deep learning time for me in terms of being able to see how policy and events and institutions are intimately tied to how well countries do both in terms of economic performance and their interaction with investors and capital markets. And what was even more fascinating at the time, I had George Soros's uh, trader at Goldman sitting behind me. And throughout my time there, she was putting the trades on that made Soros's name uh, by knocking the pound and the lira out of the exchange rate mechanism, which was the precursor and run-up to the creation of the euro. And it was a kind of trial process to align currencies before locking in fixed exchange rates. And he most famously took the bet that in international economics, we have something known as the impossible trinity or trilemma, that you cannot target your exchange rate, your interest rate, and your employment level all at the same time. You have to choose mm -hmm. yeah. two of those three. And uh, his thesis was that the British government under political pressure would not maintain the fixed exchange rate. They would let it go in order to run more stimulative uh, financial policy or uh, monetary policy and uh, boost the local economy, but at the cost of dropping out of uh, the exchange rate mechanism. Mm -hmm. And that bet was right. It made him a billion dollars at the time, which uh, was you know, more in real terms than it is now. Yeah. It established his name as probably the preeminent global macro risk taker in the world and uh, set the course for British economic and political policy in many ways, which is culminating now in the Brexit process in 2020. So almost 30 years of... Uh, developments there are still tied together in a really um, tight arc. Mm, so this actually ties in really well with something I'd like to talk about, which is 
your time spent at the IMF, particularly between 2008-2009, you know, deep into the financial crisis, and if you could elaborate on what that experience was like. Well, you know, there were a couple uh, crises or downturns in markets during that period. You had the dot-com bubble burst in around 2001-2002. You then had the 2008-2009 financial crisis. But in the background to all of that, you had developments in emerging markets, which were exactly the kind of things that I wanted to deal with and led me to the International Monetary Fund. Um, the Economist program there, which is a postgraduate training program that you can enter uh, from a PhD program or from uh, experience in either financial markets or a policy institution with at least a master's, is, I think, for people who are interested in global ma- macroeconomics and finance, really the preeminent training and experience that you can have in the world. You come in, you work on a country-focused team for one year, and in a second year, generally, you work on more of a broader policy-focused team, and then you, know, you become tenured and uh, join uh, a permanent part of the International Monetary Fund. And over the years I was there, I felt like it gave me incredible insight into how economies work from an applied top-down perspective, where you are part of a small emergency SWAT team that works with countries that are in financial crises to adjust fiscal policy, monetary policy, debt, balance of payments, and uh, the policies that affect the real economy in order to stabilize the falling growth, uh, put financial markets on an even keel and put the country in a position where it can start earning foreign exchange again and pay for its uh, imports and other uh, liabilities such as debt. I can't think of another place in the world where you can get that kind of experience at such an initial stage in one's career and uh, learn you know, from a cadre of people who are uh, so bright so well-trained and so internationalist in their perspective. Um, I wanted to work uh, in the firefighting parts of the IMF that dealt with emerging market crises. There had been a few in the late 90s that were particularly salient, the 1997 Asian financial crisis, where South Korea, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Taiwan, um, all hit hiccups. And uh, 1998 as well, you saw Russia go through a substantial financial crisis that took down long-term capital management, a really storied uh, hedge fund at the time that had uh, Myron Scholes, uh, who we all know from finance theory, as um, one of its uh, principal partners. In the early 2000s, then, you know, we had Argentina's default in the end of 2001, and uh, Brazil also hit financial trouble. Uh, and so those were the kind of problems I wanted to work on solving. And I worked on both uh, fully emerged economies like that, that were active international capital markets and very low income countries to help the IMF work with the international community to implement a number of commitments that were made in the context of the G20 and other international fora to provide a debt relief package to low-income countries to write off their debt to multilateral institutions. And to do that while remaining within international conventions and agreements 
it required a a series of workarounds, essentially, and a series of governance and economics measures to ensure that if there was debt relief provided, the resources released by debt relief would be used to finance social spending, health, education, social welfare, uh, and would not go into uh, other uh, less essential things for achieving the Millennium Development Goals, which have since been succeeded by the Sustainable Development Goals. And so that was the um, dual focus of my work at the IMF through the early 2000s. In 2007, I went on a sabbatical from the IMF to work as Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary General's economic advisor, and with Jeffrey Sachs at the Earth Institute at Columbia University on... uh, economic policy specifically focused on low-income countries and the pursuit of the Millennium Development Goals. And that's where I was when the financial crisis broke out and so was fortunate to be working with the Secretary General's office as the UN participated in things like the G20 meetings in those years uh, to coordinate and develop a comprehensive and concerted international response to the crisis. So it was a privileged spot to see how the world came together uh, and how it came together in a way that contrasts with some of the more fragmented policy making now in a way that was uh, remarkable and historic. This is truly a fascinating, um, interesting story. And I think it ties in well with um, currently what's been going on in the world. And I do want to just um, take a different route right now and ask you, um, with your experience, how are emerging markets going to deal with the current pandemic-induced contraction? We've seen how um, wealthier countries have had a hard time dealing uh, with the situation. What What are the, your thoughts on what's currently going to happen or is happening to emerging markets? Uh, Well, what you're seeing right now is uh, a mix of developments for emerging markets. In the initial onset of the pandemic and the lockdowns in order to control the contagion, you saw an enormous outflow of capital from emerging markets. Investors withdrew from local bond funds and equity markets in a substantial way. In fact, at about twice the speed and scale of the withdrawal or pullback from financial markets and in the emerging world in the wake of the 2008 crisis. Um, We have seen those outflows stabilize and in some cases, some inflows return. Uh, But what has also happened is because this is an unprecedented recession, and I use that word with some advisement because obviously it's becoming hackneyed right now. Um, There are ways in which this recession though truly is unprecedented. The speed with which it's come on is much faster than any other downturn that we've had, largely because it's been imposed by policy rather than developed over a number of quarters uh, through developments in financial markets. Um, It is also exceptional in that both developed markets and emerging markets are experiencing it at exactly the same time in a synchronized way, and that has rarely been the case with global financial crises in the past. Uh, But where it is similar to 2008 is that in developed markets, you've seen interest rates push down to 
just above the zero bound by central banks in order to make credit available and cheap for households and for businesses to sustain themselves and bridge themselves through the COVID-19 related lockdowns. And what that has done is allowed emerging market central banks to lower interest rates as well. And we did see that in the wake of 2008, but we're now seeing uh, emerging market central banks lower their interest rates to historic lows, far lower than they did in 2008. And they're accompanying that uh, loose monetary policy to stimulate local activity uh, with substantial deficit spending, which is not something we've traditionally seen in the past. And that combination of using both fiscal and monetary policy in emerging markets is also distinct from the past because in previous decades, emerging markets were typically more constrained because if they lowered interest rates and jacked up deficit spending, it would be a recipe for depreciating their exchange rate, which would make debt that they had borrowed on international markets in U.S. dollars or yen or pound more expensive to service. Now, you've seen to a greater extent emerging markets are issuing debt in their local currencies, and that provides them more policy space to respond to the crisis with looser fiscal policy and looser looser monetary policy. And that should mean that local, uh, local markets and people, most importantly, in those markets are able to be cushioned to a greater extent than they otherwise would be through the crisis. So this is a real change for emerging markets. And in some ways, uh, it's a release from what uh, some economists have called uh, original sin, where uh, as a result of being unable to issue in their domestic currency, they are uh, unable then to implement traditional responses to downturns. That has become less and less the case, and that is a really distinct difference about this crisis, so much so uh, that we're even beginning to see some uh, emerging markets launch non-traditional monetary policy, uh, otherwise known as quantitative easing, by mm-hmm. having their central banks begin to buy, um, buy government debt in order to keep yields down. So it's a real shift. Continuing with this line of questioning, just a little bit differently, How well do you think central banks have responded to the pandemic-induced contraction? There's certainly been opinions, arguments, if not even critique, that there is this addiction to cheap credit and that it it is a fundamental flaw in our economic system. Are these arguments warranted? Well, uh, you know, I I don't think it's a fundamental flaw. In fact, I think it's uh, a virtue of policy that it's responding appropriately to try to keep yields under control to ensure that uh, reductions in monetary policy rates are being passed on through credit markets, uh, that sufficient liquidity is being provided to credit markets to ensure that they keep functioning uh, and are able to uh, ensure that businesses can finance themselves uh, through a very um, unusual time. Uh, The willingness of policymakers to experiment and to uh, implement those experiments in response to difficult financial and economic conditions, uh, I think is a strong virtue of people being uh, beyond orthodoxy. 
and uh, not bound to uh, a narrow view of how economic and financial policy should be done. Mm-hmm. So uh, shifting gears a little bit and going into a different line of questioning is the international economy. There's certainly been a lot of talk on international trade and on top of the ongoing health crisis is the added political tension between states. And the question is, are we going to see a rise in the domestic economy? Will there be a reduction in international trade? Well, you can answer your question two ways. If you demean, mean domestic economy within the household, uh, we've already seen that. Uh, we've seen savings rates go up substantially. People are obviously at home. They've shifted their consumption patterns. Uh, grocery stores are seeing 30 to 40% year-over-year increases in sales volumes. Um, so people have become markedly domestic, uh, and by uh, by diktat in some ways, but also by uh, policy and uh, and in response in their consumption decisions. In terms of like the broader issue, are we be going going to become more focused on domestic production and domestic consumption? Uh, we may to a degree, but I think globalization is far from dead. Uh, we have been at uh, what are nearly unprecedented levels of global economic integration for a few years now. Uh, when I say nearly unprecedented, I should note that really we've just got back to the level of global macroeconomic integration that we saw at the uh, in the 1910s, right before the outbreak of the First World War, where travel was relatively easy between countries, visa restrictions were very limited, uh, trade flowed pretty freely, particularly between uh, major financial centers of the world, and capital flowed pretty freely as well. Uh, as a result of two world wars, a lot of uh, controls and barriers were constructed uh, that has taken that have taken you know decades for us to unwind. And we are back to the early 20th century levels of uh, goods, services, and uh, capital markets integration. Uh, and we are likely to see a little retreat uh, from those record high levels of integration on the goods front um, as. The United States has moved back from being the global champion of liberalized trade and financial markets, um, and as well as countries have begun focusing on ensuring that they have domestic sources of things like personal protective equipment and other very strategic items. But I think death knells or eulogies being read for globalization are deeply premature. Uh, we also know that the sectors that have got the most diversified global supply chains, like the electronic sector, have been able to respond most nimbly to developments in the world. You know, when uh, COVID-19 has broken out in specific places or when the U.S. has launched tariffs in its recent protectionist turn, that has resulted in us seeing global supply chains for electronics move very nimbly around the world and respond to keep their production processes going forward and keep them engaged in supplying their major markets. I do not expect that the lesson we will draw from the current moment is that we should shut down that level of internationalization and source everything locally. We know from economic theory and economic practice that is unlikely to be more resilient or more robust. It's unlikely to produce uh, cheaper goods and services 
And, you know, as a result, it's likely reduce uh, human well-being rather than improve it. Um, that said, I think we should also remember that globalization doesn't just mean trade in goods. It also means movement in people and it means trade in services. And with the development of the Internet and uh, virtual ways of providing services, we are seeing the internationalization of services trade to a greater extent than we ever have in the past. And that's almost certainly going to keep going. Uh, and it certainly means that some jobs that people thought could never be offshored are actively uh, going to become more internationalized. In terms of movement of people, uh, that probably is a little more complicated uh, in that, again, the United States has taken a very anti-immigrant turn under this White House. Uh, but for countries like Canada, that provides an incredible opportunity. Uh, about 75% of our population growth and therefore about two-thirds or so of our economic growth over the last five years or so has been driven by increasing immigration numbers. And while our immigration intake is shut down right now in view of the pandemic, we should be looking at getting our immigration numbers back up again as quickly as possible. Those who say, well, we have high unemployment, we shouldn't be bringing more people into the country, are getting this actually incredibly backwards. We should be ensuring that immigration numbers get back up again precisely to stoke the growth that we need in order to ensure that people get back to work. So um, I don't think we're at the end of globalization. I don't think that we're going to see a massive rise in autarkic or domestic-focused economies. We'll see a few changes in areas like PPE, but I don't think we should extrapolate from those to broader lessons about how the world will develop from here. Great insight. What a wonderful answer to that question. My next question is a little bit different, and it has to do with markets. And markets are pretty elevated right now. There's a bounce, and it looks like it's a V-shaped recovery. And my question is, should we keep this optimism? What explains this rally that we've seen in markets when economies have only recently started opening up? Well, because... Equity markets price the future. They don't price the present. And what those equity markets are reflecting is a view that governments have been reasonably successful at providing bridge financing to sustain companies and households through the lockdowns as we move then onward to reopening in a gradual and staged fashion. And equity markets are reflecting the kind of valuations that we saw prior to the crisis, and they're voting with their purchasing power to say that if that they thought, you know, these companies and uh, businesses were viable prior to the crisis, and they're saying we think the uh, measures to keep them afloat are working, and as they do reopen, we should see the kind of implied future earnings being thrown off by them that are consistent with the valuations that we had more or less pre-crisis. Still, by a multiple uh, set of valuation metrics, these in some ways look cheap rather than uh, expensive, depending upon how you look at them. So it's by no means the case that uh, just because equity markets have got back close to where they were prior to the lockdown, that they're somehow divorced from reality. In fact, in many ways, they're even more attached to reality than some of the headlines that query where they're going. That said, uh, there is great vulnerability to another sell-off, particularly as 
we see that the U.S. has not even gotten finished with its first wave before seeing uh, the rebound of COVID-19 numbers in many states. You know, as of just a few days ago, we had 28 out of 50 states that were seeing substantial rises in new COVID-19 positive test numbers. And there are actually 13 states where uh, those positive test numbers on a daily basis are up by 50% over a week or two ago. So uh, I do think equity valuations are not detached from what's happening in uh, the real economy or in the public health space. In fact, they are intimately attached and subject to another correction if we mismanage the reopening process, if we politicize masks, if we don't follow science. Mm -hmm. Um, And there have been papers that look back at the uh, 1918 Spanish flu that do show that we don't really face a clear trade-off between the economy and public health. Those countries and cities that shut down and quarantined most effectively in response to the 1918 flu saw what implied was implied by data uh, stronger growth rates and stronger returns to economic activity in the following year. In a similar way in, nor- in the world now, those countries like Germany uh, that did the best job at containing a spread of the virus at the outset have also been some of the earliest ones to be able to open up effectively without inducing new spikes. So the notion that the economy and public health are a necessary tension, I think, is a false one. Okay, thank you for for that insight. And we're going to change um, the line of questioning a little bit and go look deeper into um, your professional journey. And if you could tell us what are some of the biggest challenges you've encountered throughout your career and how did you overcome them? What decisions did you make that really impacted um, future success? Uh, well, you know, I, I would not overstate the challenges that I faced. I, I came from a great place in a great country and I've worked hard and had a lot of luck and opportunities handed my way. Um, So I would say humbly with that context in mind, two things that have been top of mind have been operating as an out gay man in the workplace from, uh, from early on when it was far less common on a trading floor or in a bank or other large financial institution. Uh, I was head of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual employee group at uh, the International Monetary Fund and helped lead the fight for equal uh, benefits and recognition of same-sex couples for marriage benefits at the IMF. And we faced substantial pushback from a variety of quarters, including other employee groups uh, that did not want to see equal benefits put into place. Uh, It was a lesson, though, in the notion that your allies are often unexpected and your foes are often unexpected. Uh, We were opposed by a couple of religious uh, employee groups uh, who I would have thought would be more welcoming and more accepting. But on the executive board of the IMF, the representative of Iran was our biggest champion and was instrumental in getting the reform passed and the reinterpretation of some of the IMF's guidelines 
that led to equal benefits being put into place. So, you know, there are a few lessons there in terms of uh, the work I did really benefit and benefited and built on and stood on the shoulders of people who had nudged the issue forward substantially before me, who had ensured that there were HR regulations that were written in a non-gendered way from the 1970s, which was slightly unheard of. Um, and so it pointed to, you know, what are long processes that require not so much patience, but dedication to bring to mm -hmm. fruition. And also it was a real testament to the fact that, you know, you don't get to choose who your enemies are and you also don't necessarily get to choose who your friends are either. And, you know, you should welcome those friends uh, in whatever form they, they come. I never would have thought the Iranian executive director would be our, our biggest ally in getting that, that reform measure passed. A fascinating story, truly admirable work, and much respect for everything you've achieved and fought for. So thank you for sharing that story with us. So just a final question before we get into our closing remarks is what is the best advice you can give someone starting university or someone only recently graduating as they pursue their career? Well, I think as people think about how their careers will be shaped and what they will do, I think it's important to think about the key questions that they want to ask and work on. Um, and those questions can manifest themselves in a variety of ways. I think what I mean by questions are, what are the big problems that you want to solve or contribute to improving? For me, the two issues that I kind of wanted to figure out were over long time spans, uh, why is it that some countries do far better than others? Why have some policy frameworks or some institutional settings been more successful at putting people out of poverty uh, than other similar countries that appeared endowed with more resources and more assets and more good fortune from the outset. So that's a very long horizon set of questions. And then there's a much shorter horizon set of questions around financial crises. I was interested and remain interested in why did they develop? Uh, how can we anticipate them more fully? And how, if we anticipate them, can we mitigate them and minimize them? And if they do happen, how do we cushion the blow uh, that they cause to people across an economy and mop up the mess as quickly as possible so that we resume growth and we minimize the impact uh, that they have on the well-being of people? So those are the questions I'm interested in. And it may not be intuitively obvious that they inhabit every one of the things uh, that I've done across my career, but they really are uh, the motivating questions that have been at the heart of everything I've done and remain at the heart of what I do at the bank. And uh, I would say focus on the questions and problems you want to solve much more than what specifically you want to do specifically which institution or firm you want to do it in, where you want to do it, or even necessarily how you want to do it. If you remain focused on the core questions and flexible on the other things, that's how you can benefit from the serendipity of opportunities that, for me, led to working in places like you know the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the United Nations, 
and on the buy side and sell side and finance and in research roles in universities with incredible uh, professors and great minds. And that's largely because I was focused on the questions I wanted to work on more than specifically how I had to do it. I think this is incredible advice. You have an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that with us today. If you have anything more to add, um, I think that's how we can wrap this up. Well, I just think you know, the most important thing early in one's career, and I know this sounds easy for me to say being a couple decades on, uh, but I think it's uh, less important to focus again on details or specifics, being hung up on must-haves, and thinking much more broadly about these must-hows. You know, mm-hmm. how do you want to contribute? What questions do you want to ask? And broadly speaking, um, what are the ways in which you want to work on answering them? And I think if you keep those in mind, uh, almost any career is going to be interesting and satisfying. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for your time for a fascinating conversation. Thanks. It was great to speak with you. That was my conversation with Brett House, truly an amazing individual. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. It was such a pleasure having him on this platform. As well, the Finance Podcast is powered by the McGill Investment Club. Remember to stay tuned. There's a lot more coming up.